welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Thank you, Joanne and Mark. A while back, maybe you remember this suicide group that made a pact. They were called the Heaven's Gate group down in San Diego who uh, made a pact of suicide and there was a slick magazine that came out with an article, the American Heritage Magazine, which compared that group to a group in 1844 who came to believe that Jesus' coming would be on or around the year 1844, October 22, based on the fulfillment of the 2300-year prophecy of Daniel 8. Well, that comparison is just wildly irrelevant because... The Heaven's Gate suicide group was totally self-centered and therefore fanatical. They were uh, loveless. But according to very sober historical research, the pioneers of the Seventh-day Advent movement back in the mid-19th century were as near to love-filled and unselfish a group as any church since the early apostles. They loved the Jesus, and they wanted to meet him in the clouds of glory. They wanted to help people in need. They were inspired by the then recent demonstration of God's love in Christ. These 1844 people, members of many different denominations, were the true ecumenists of all time. In other words, they seriously sought to fulfill Christ's prayer. And I'd like for you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 17 and read Christ's prayer of unity in John 17 and verse 21. The 1844 movement was were, a movement of the true ecumenists who, who were uniting in the love of Christ in preparing for his second coming and fulfilling the prayer of Jesus in John 17, 21, that all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, it was Bible truth that brought these people of many different persuasions and cultures into that oneness. And there was no fanaticism. There was just a sweet harmony in their common belief in the love of Christ. Now more than a century and a half has gone by, and Jesus has still not returned according to his promise in John 14 where he says, I will come again. But the faith that motivated those pioneers in the 1844 movement now is motivating millions of people around the world who still believe that Jesus will keep his promise and return a second time. They are not going around setting dates for Jesus' return. They're only seeking that love of Christ that they may be perfect in him. But their motivation is being purified. 
It's no longer based merely upon a a fear of hell or a hope of reward in heaven. A new motivation is emerging. A new motivation of a concern for Christ, that Jesus received the reward for which he gave his sacrifice. Just like Isaiah says, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Jesus believed that by dying on the cross, there would be some on this earth who would appreciate his great love and want to thank him for it. And that produces a miracle of love for others. Loving what Jesus has done for us produces a miracle of us loving others. The last book of the Bible sees Jesus as a bridegroom who at last receives his bride who has made herself ready and nothing in the world is better good news than that. So how can millions of Christians all around the world, how can they be in harmony? How can they be unified? How can people in a church truly believe the same thing? You know, it's important because Jesus said that the only way that the world can be brought to believe in him is when his followers all may be one. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Something he calls thy truth. God's truth is what brings us into oneness. It's the only thing that will unite them. Paul calls it the truth of the gospel. The success or the failure of Christ's mission for the world therefore depends on that truth, God's truth, bringing his people who profess to keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, which is the motivation for it in Revelation 14, 12. We could compare it this way. How could a group of mathematicians come into unity and convince the world that 2 plus 2 equals 4? They'd all have to believe it, right? But if there were some mathematicians who said, no, 2 plus 2 equals 5, would they convince the world? No, they would be in disharmony, wouldn't they? But I think mathematicians, aren't they pretty well unified, Candace, that 2 plus 2 equals 4? So they're convincing to the world. Likewise, for Seventh-day Adventists, to be convincing to the world, we need to be unified in the truth of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that truth of the gospel that is so simple and clear that it will appeal to honest hearts with a similarly powerful logic. Now, can anyone follow Christ truly and not be engaged in a warfare? We are engaged in the great controversy, aren't we? With Jesus, between Christ and Satan, we are engaged in hand-to-hand combat in the great controversy. Jesus himself is heavily engaged. In fact, Jesus was the first Protestant, you know. Because when the rebellion broke out in heaven with Lucifer and one-third of the angels in heaven, everything would have gone all, flowed all set Lucifer's way, and he would have convinced the other two-thirds of the angels if it had his way. Except for what? Michael protested. And Michael is another name for Jesus. So Jesus is the original Protestant 
Jesus is protesting today against error and seeking to unify his people in their hearts with his truth, the truth of the gospel. And so, unity does not necessarily mean there won't be conflict. Let's get that straight. Sometimes we misunderstand unity as everybody's hunky-dory and simpatico with each other, and we have a big umbrella, and you can believe whatever you want to believe. But that's not true unity. It may be ecumenism as far as the world identifies it, but that's not true unity, correct? There is only true unity in the truth of the gospel, in God's truth. In fact, Jesus himself said that those who contend for the faith once delivered to the saints are going to be threatened with reviling and persecution. Jesus said, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. So, This great controversy, warfare, over standing for the truth is not for couch potatoes. It just isn't. It's not for bystanders. Everyone needs to make a decision in this hand-to-hand combat in the great controversy. Now, why is there so much opposition when truth is proclaimed, even sometimes in the church? For example... Bible teaching is clear as sunlight that the new covenant is, uh, uh, is the better promises of God. The everlasting gospel is based on the better promises of God. The old covenant is the worthless promises of the people. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And yet old covenant ideas keep cropping up and there is tension and suspicion where there should be pleasant fellowship and harmony among God's people. Like the prophet Jeremiah, who was hounded and he was cursed and reviled in Jerusalem by God's own people until he longed for a place in the wilderness where he could cry and cry. He said, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night in the wilderness. Well, people who love the truths of the Bible weep today, as Jeremiah did. Jeremiah was not some kind of a psychopath. The truth is that his opposing people were at war with God himself. And Jeremiah stood for the truth of God. And he was reviled and he was persecuted for it. And after Jeremiah's death, the Jews began to recognize how he was the greatest of the prophets whom God had sent to them. And yet they made Jeremiah's life a hell on earth. He wasn't beatified in sainthood, didn't get sainthood until centuries later. Recognized Jeremiah as the greatest of the prophets. And so one day, too, the Son of God came one Sabbath day to a congregation of God's true people in the town of Nazareth. And he was asked to read the scripture for that morning out of the book of Isaiah. And Jesus told them, after reading that scripture, he said, This day is this prophecy fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one 
that you people have been looking for for millenniums. What was the result? The people of God who kept the Holy Sabbath tried to kill him and throw him off a cliff outside of town. The common people heard him gladly, but the higher you went up into the hierarchy of the true church of that day, the more bitter was the hatred that the meek and the gentle Jesus provoked. One day a delegation from the intellectual capital of the then-known world came to Jesus to invite him, would you please come and teach your great teachings in in the intellectual capital of our world, which is Athens, Greece. And the temptation was just so enormous to Jesus to get away from the bitter prejudices where he could go and teach some receptive people who would appreciate him, but he chose rather to stay in Jerusalem. And by choosing to stay in Jerusalem, he chose to go to the cross. And that was headquarters for the work. He chose to be crucified by the leaders of God's people. A delegate, well, he was told not to be, he has told us not to be surprised by the painful opposition that comes sometimes from God's true people in the last days. In fact, as Jesus was on the cross, he prayed for his persecutors. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prays that way today. He prays that way today, and the prayer will be answered. God does forgive his people for opposing and for rejecting the beginning of the latter rain and the loud cry, but he will also be very severe because he gives any generation, he gives any church, only one chance to accept or reject the beginning of that rare and most precious gift of the latter rain. So let's not let any idle words come out of our hearts right now if the Holy Spirit is convicting us that this is God's truth. We might be insulting the Holy Spirit. Yes, unity is absolutely essential, but unity cannot truly be achieved by a denial or a suppression of the truth, can it? Unity cannot be achieved by saying, all right, let's just let down all of our little peculiar ideas and we can each have our own ideas of what truth is. Everybody has some truth. We'll just have a big umbrella here. That can't be unity, can it? Truth is the truth of the gospel. What the Bible teaches, the present truth, a temporary illusion of unity may follow in the wake of threats and fear, but only the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, can bring us all into the unity of which Christ prayed. And apparently, controversy controversy is not necessarily an unmitigated evil, apparently, Because we read this in Gospel Workers, page 298. The fact that there is no controversy or agitation among God's people should not be regarded as conclusive evidence that they are holding fast to sound doctrine. 
There's a reason to fear that they may not be clearly discriminating between truth and error. When no new questions are started by investigation of the Scriptures, when no difference of opinion arises which will set men to searching the Bible for themselves to make sure that they have the truth, there will be many now, as in ancient times, who will hold to tradition and worship they know not what. I've been shown that many who profess to have a knowledge of present truth know not what they believe. They do not understand the evidences of their faith. They have no just appreciation of the work for the present time. When the time of trial shall come, there are men now preaching to others who will find upon examining the positions they hold that there are many things for which they can give no satisfactory reason. And until thus tested, they knew not their great ignorance. One area of conflict that has raged in the minds and the hearts of hundreds of, uh, for hundreds of years within the church is how one is forgiven by faith, how one is forgiven their sins by faith. And yes, that battle has been going on for most, the most of 2,000 years since Christ. And one entire book in the New Testament is devoted to identifying that conflict over righteousness by faith. That is the book of Galatians. Paul says it's worth contending for. There's, there was no way that one could be a Christian then and not take a side either for what Paul declared as the truth of the gospel or for the false teachers who came down from Jerusalem to oppose him. And the battle has not subsided even today. Bring up the subject in almost any church or Bible class and you can see how the sparks fly. And must the controversy, the conflict go on and on forever? Or can those who choose to believe in Christ resolve the conflict and come into genuine and lasting heart unity? Is the Bible clear on how we are forgiven our sins? Or is the very source of our faith itself muddled and confused? Ellen White says in the book Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 473, that great truths that have lain unheeded and unseen since the day of Pentecost are to shine from God's Word in their native purity. To those who truly love God, the Holy Spirit will reveal truths that have faded from the mind and will also reveal truths that are entirely new. Now God invites you to come to Him, to get the issue settled once and for all so that your mind and your heart are clear and your feet are on solid ground. When Jesus, the night before, he, before His death, prayed His last prayer to His Father, you still have your Bibles open to John 17, in the presence of those few disciples, Jesus clearly distinguished between two classes of people. So if you look at verse 2, John chapter 17 and verse 2, he says that the Father sent him in the world so that he might give to them everlasting life. Here's the verse. 
as thou hast given him power over what? So the Father gave to Jesus power over everybody. Then it says that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. How many did the Father give him? Then to whom did he give the gift of of eternal life? It's clear as day, isn't it? It's clear as sunlight truth. Don't resist it. It's from the lips of Jesus himself. That's the first group. All flesh. The Father has given to him and he has given eternal life to all. Then in verse 6, it's, this is the second group, is the people whom the Father gave him. And within that group that the Father has given him, of all the world, of all flesh, there are those who are out of the world. In verse 6, here's how it reads. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have what? Kept thy word. So everyone has been given the gift of eternal life, but not everyone receives the gift. Correct? Not everyone appreciates the gift. Those who keep the word of eternal life are the ones who are brought out of the world. But because people don't believe the gift doesn't mean, does not negate the fact that everyone in the world has been given eternal life. Amen? Amen. The fact that many in the world don't want to receive the gift God has given them does not mean that the gift was not given to them. And if a person refuses to believe in Christ, that does not mean that Christ did not die for them. Christ died for every last soul on this planet and gave salvation to each one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Long before you and I ever chose to believe it or to disbelieve it. But does our unbelief in the gift, does our failure to receive the gift, does that cancel out the gift that was given? Not at all. In the final judgment before the great great white throne at the end of the biblical thousand years, the lost will realize that their lifelong unbelief was a rejection of the everlasting life which the Father had given them in Christ. And they will see themselves as Esau, who despised and sold the birthright that God had given, not merely offered him. Oh, may the realization of the the gift given, may it move your heart and mine collectively out of our lukewarmness, out of our pathetic lukewarmness, into the motivation of his agape love. Now, Jesus has a burden on his heart. The last night that he was praying there in John 17, that the disunity that has plagued his followers through the ages, could it be that the root of that tragically persistent disunity is the unconscious refusal of Christians' hearts to appreciate that the gift 
was given to the world? Could it be? Could it be that in our lukewarm hearts we want to limit the love of Christ? We want to reduce salvation to an offer, to a mere offer? Do we want to glory in our own initiative to receive an offer? When we enter the new Jerusalem, do we want to say, I'm here because I believed? Is that what we want to do? I grabbed the offer. I took the initiative in my salvation. I was smart enough. Or rather, it very likely seems more true that those who enter into the new Jerusalem will beat upon their breasts and they will say, I'm unworthy. I am unworthy. I'm here only because of the grace of God. Not because of my taking the initiative to believe and offer. To him and him alone belong all the glory. I thank him for all of the troubles that he's allowed me to have so that unbelieving I might learn how to believe. Seems like that's near closer to the truth. Then, Lord, I was smart enough to believe and to accept your offer, and I'm here because I believed and took the initiative. Paul's letter to the Ephesians makes this his plea that we let the Holy Spirit do something special, bring us into perfect theological harmony. His plea there was read in our scripture lesson in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, that God has given the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers to preach and to teach confusion, to tear the flock asunder with conflicting theology, to perplex the lay members so that they don't know which end is up, Is that why these gifts have been given? No. But to perfect the saints, it says. To build up the body of Christ till we all come into what? The unity of the faith. Under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Yes, this text is talking about theological harmony. Paul's illustration is very vivid. He compares all of these gifts of the Holy Spirit to a human body that is fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. A good violinist fingers fingers and wrists and joints do what the head desires and thus makes beautiful music. A basketball team functions in perfect unity Paul never heard a symphony orchestra like the London Philharmonic, each musician with its unique instrument playing from a different score. But if all of the musicians played the same notes, it wouldn't be harmonic, it would be boring. But they make harmony in unison, in unison with differing parts, No discord, no confusion, but such perfect perfect theological harmony. People say, well, that's wild. That's impossible. The church will never be in harmony as far as theology is concerned. We hear it said. We must preach. We must teach contradictory views of this and that and the other 
differing in our understandings of prophecy. We must try to silence each other, even in understanding what Christ accomplished by his sacrifice. And like a busload of passengers, all telling the driver to take different routes, all of them backseat drivers, we are told it's impossible for the church to be unified. Can we achieve perfecting unity of the faith, unity of the Spirit? A visitor can walk in to the church. A visitor walks in on Sabbath morning. Maybe he sees the class in conflict over righteousness by faith. And the visitor leaves confused. You think he's going to come back? Ephesians gives us the key to finding true harmony. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in agape. A different kind of love that listens to each other carefully so as not to misrepresent each other. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. No more misquoting each other so as to win an argument. Yes, at last, self crucified with Christ. And now the church, like a symphony orchestra, is making beautiful music. Will the visitor come back now? Yes, it will be the loud cry blessed by the latter rain outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so the apostle is pleading for church members to speak, to teach the same thing, that there be no divisions, that they may be perfectly joined together in the same mind. The apostle Paul is not making idle talk here. He's not making idle talk. This is God's ideal for his church. It's a little-known prediction. There's a little-known prediction in an out-of-date book of Ellen White's called Historical Sketches, page 124, but she categorically says that there's a blessed heart and mind unity that will be realized in the church before Jesus returns. Here are her words. They will see eye to eye in all matters of religious belief. They will speak and teach the same things. Did you catch that? I tell you, that's good news. That's good news. That will be the loud cry and the latter rain. And so when we read Jesus' prayer with his disciples there in John chapter 17, it just flows easily and serenely as if he were utterly calm and he is unperturbed as he is facing his horrible death, reading it with the unimpassioned spirit of reading a scientific lecture just deprives us of the true meaning of Jesus' prayer in John 17. It cannot be truly understood except in the light of Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. In fact, if we say that John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer, then it becomes obvious that this passage in Hebrews 5, 7, and 8, describes this particular prayer. The words are a high priest forever who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying 
and tears unto him, the Father, who is able to save him from death. John's 17 prayer was prayed with strong crying and tears that his church would come into unity and speak the same thing in love. The thought of Jesus dying the curse of God on the cross, it just caused the very soul of Jesus to shudder to the core. Have you ever thought of it this way? That he died the curse of God on the cross. You know what that means, don't you? He was not forgiven. The second death is to die a death being unforgiven. To die the first death is to die forgiven. It's a resurrection of life that is to follow. Not the resurrection of damnation, of course, because folks have not accepted or received the gift. Die the first death is to die a death of forgiveness of sins. But to die the death that Jesus died on the cross was to die unforgiven. Doesn't that move your heart? And so it caused the soul of Jesus to shudder with dread, infinitely more so than any criminal who faces death by injection on death row. The latter kind of death is only asleep with the sense of God's forgiveness. The death of Jesus' face was the sum total of all the hopeless deaths under that curse of God. He was in the process of being made to be sin for us who knew no sin. And in a few moments, he would be pleading and agonizing with the Father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to die unforgiven. I don't want to go into the black hole of death. In other words, Father, please find some other way for me to save the world short of dying on the cross. And then another convulsion of tears. And perhaps this might help us to make good sense of his repeated request about being glorified because that's a theme in John 17, to to glorify the Father that he might be glorified. When Jesus prayed that to be, that he, that he might be glorified. Do you think that he was praying that? He said, Father, please show me off. Is that what he was praying? I want to be a show-off. I want to get some attention here. I want to get somebody to listen up. Is that what he meant by praying to be glorified? When he pleads with the Father, glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee, he means, please enable me to demonstrate agape throughout the terrible trial that faces me. Hold thou my hand. Don't let me stumble and fall. Save me from letting self mar my witness. Teach me to be patient when they beat me up. Pull me out, pull my beard out, spit in my face. Teach me to be patient when they revile me. Teach me to be patient when they lie about me, when they mock me, when they strip me down naked, when they exhibit me, when they nail me to the tree. Teach me to be patient. 
And we read that the grace of God was upon him throughout his whole life on earth, and never did he need that grace more and beg for it more than right there at the cross. And if he can endure the cross, that will be glory. And that brings us to the same glory that he has given those who believe in him. John 17, 22. Because the Lord knows we need unity. We need unity. Is there any other way that we can learn to be one even as Jesus and his Father are one than through identification with him on the cross? There is a secret to answered prayer that we must not forget. Jesus says, If two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. So praying by yourself may not be enough. You'd be surprised how rare it is to find two individuals, even in the church, who are totally in heart unity. Not that one must be a clone of the other, no, 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 but that the Holy Spirit just has trouble convicting two people alike in the same church. One seems always to be breaking away from heart unity in some way. If only two could fulfill that promise in prayer, they could turn the world upside down, let alone their little church or their little communities. The prayer of Christ's heart still is for his disciples, that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And with his church fragmented, it may seem that even Christ, after 2,000 years, can't get his prayers answered when he prays by himself. But don't give up your faith. Christ's prayer must be answered or he must lose the great controversy with Satan. Pray with him, will you? He needs you on his side. Agree with him in truth that his people may be brought into that true, blessed oneness in him. You have a prayer partner in Jesus. There's two right there that come into harmony in God's church. Someday, somewhere, someone is going to understand the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ so clearly that another angel will come down from heaven having great power and will lighten the earth with the glory of that full-orbed truth. And multitudes now who sit in darkness will see a great light and they will come to it. And it won't be only someone who understands. There will be many who are in heartfelt union around the world of every tribe and nation and tongue and people. No more theological squabbles among them. That unity will be as much a miracle as the insight of that someone who will see crystal clear what the gospel is without contradicting confusion. That unity will be in fulfillment of the prayer of Jesus in John 17, 21. I do not pray for these alone, but for also those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, 
as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. The world will not believe until they see that oneness. And those who will understand the gospel and be in union will receive the seal of God in their foreheads. Obviously, it's a symbol of a heart understanding of truth that has also gripped the understanding of their mind. And they will have pondered and studied, and they will believe Jesus' promise. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They're going to graduate out of old covenant living into the bright sunlight of new covenant living. The old covenant will no longer produce bondage in them, but they will stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. They will overcome where ancient Israel stumbled and fell. Instead of crucifying Christ afresh and bringing him to an open shame, they will surrender self to be crucified with him. And as soon as they receive the seal of God and follow the Lamb, the crucified and the risen Savior of the world, the enemy will launch against them his mark of the beast to attempt to frighten them into submission, but perfect agape has at last cast out all fear. And they're seated with Christ on his throne to bring a triumphant close to the great controversy with Satan. But it will not be without contending and conflict of the truth of the gospel. But this this must, but this must this glorious truth of the gospel Does this have to wait another generation? Does it have to pass us, our generation right now? Because of hearts of unbelief? Because we want to have it our own way? Are there some out there right now who long to see the victory come now? Or do we have to write more books and put it in the library for some future student to dig up? a hundred years from now. Father in heaven, Jesus prayed for unity among his people. The reason that the church doesn't move forward in such dramatic fulfillment of Bible prophecy that the last days will manifest miracles is because of our unbelief and our disunity and not coming together in the truth of the gospel. Yes, there is church growth exponentially throughout the world, but it is not the latter rain that you have promised. The latter rain and the loud cry message can only come when your people come into heart unity, and we need to study. And let the Word of God and Christ and the Holy Spirit convict our hearts and bring us into unity so that there's harmony. And the Lord can use us as a symphonic orchestra So that when visitors come, they will witness that unity. And they won't leave, but they'll stay. That unity will witness that they have the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.